0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the Capitalize for Kids podcast. In this, our final episode of the season, we speak with the managing director of Capitalize for Kids and my boss, Quentin Broad. Quentin joined Capitalize for Kids three months ago after a 30 plus year career on Bay Street, uh, where he was most recently the head of institutional equity sales at CIBC. In this episode, we talk about his reasons behind the career transition, uh, the importance of viewing donating as charitable investing, And his learnings as an eight-time Ironman competitor uh, without losing sight of the one time he did not finish uh, which we dive into as well. I may be biased because he is my boss uh, but this is really a great episode with a ton of strong takeaways uh, and a ton of great learnings especially for anyone interested in learning about why someone leaves a high-paying role on Bay Street to join a nonprofit with a much stronger focus and social impact specifically. Uh, So without further ado, here is my conversation with Quentin Broad. We've been chatting about about having you on on the podcast uh, for some time now. We figured that you you fit the bill of of someone that we wanna have uh, on on the podcast in that you you obviously had a very interesting career and you've you've made a, a career transition that that I have a lot of respect for. I say only, only the greatest to do this. You went from, from the trading floor to a nonprofit. And and I know that we have a, a few folks who've made some interesting career decisions here at Capitalize for Kids. But you've had the longest career uh, in, in the capital markets. Um, what made you go from the equity side of a trading floor to, to coming to a startup nonprofit?
1: The notion of making a transition. Uh, I've done a lot in my career of these transitions from running an HR unit to being a corporate banker to being in the investment banking through to being a research analyst uh, at a boutique firm, a first marathon, and then going to a big bank platform. So transitions are something that I've done a lot of in my career. And um, I think, frankly, this is just one more of these. A lot of people have the view that it's materially different And and probably I'd argue a a little bit against that. With that said, you know this is a a small shop. It's not quite startup in my from my perspective. Um, We're coming into our fifth annual investor conference, so um, we have some legs under us. But we are a five person team currently versus a forty four thousand person team that I left, and we're. A five-year-old organization versus a 151-year-old organization that I left. So, there are some material differences, but I think at its at its base, it's about um, finding something you can get passionate about um, and put a whole bunch of effort into that to get great outcomes. And that's what I hope to be able to do with uh, the team here at Capitalize for Kids. You mentioned in your in your career,
0: you know, you've kind of done from HR to you know insurance to research analyst it seems like you know the corporate banking you know like the only constant in your career has been change do you take that mindset have you have you always been chasing change is that something that you you search for or is that something that is just natural uh throughout a career is is you know change happens and you've got to kind of adjust to it
1: yeah, I think change change happens. Um, although clearly, some people seek it out for you know just to have something different going on in their lives, not to not to get bored. So they're f- frequently finding change. Um, I'd say in my career, there were natural evolutions um, that created the change. I mean, on my. In my personal life, I've been married to the same woman for uh, 28 years in 14 or 12 days. So, um, you know, that's been a tremendous uh, part of the foundation of who I am. And and Diane's been along for this ride. And without her, I couldn't have actually achieved the things that I've um, done. So, you know, in many ways, I think change for me anyway, it was natural. It came at, at points in time that I, I needed to make a move to get to kind of the next level of opportunity. So from HR to corporate banking, it was really a mentor who suggested I needed to get into, the, into a role within the bank that it valued. Um, and for Scotiabank, corporate banking is a key one. Uh, when I made the change to Deutsche, it was really to spread my wings a little bit from a corporate banking role at, at Scotia. And then I made that transition to the capital markets in the equity capital markets business when I went to first marathon from Deutsche. So the, a lot of these activities are, are really to get to the next level of opportunity for me that made sense at the time versus simply just changing up. I mean, I spent 10 years as the head of research. So um, the longest tenured equity research uh, uh had at CIBC, so you know, change has also been met with uh, you know good long foundational stretches uh, in my career. Why did you choose Capitalize for Kids as the
0: organization that you were going to rest your hat on after uh, your long career in the capital
1: markets industry? Capitalize for Kids, they've really it really has differentiated itself in the market um, in probably three different ways. And it's why these ways attracted me to the platform. Number one is um, they identified Bay Street as a key funding opportunity. And I'd agree wholeheartedly. It's an area that I've been operating in. I've been a major major individual giver, campaign chair over at CIBC. And this is an area of opportunity for sure. Two, I think a critical focus for us on a go forward basis is really about uh, building capacity within kids' mental health. And so to me, the greatest leverage and opportunity for us as a community is to help solve the problems and the challenges of kids' mental health. And, And while our healthcare system is brilliant when you have an acute issue, so if you have a heart attack you get access immediately to some of the best medicine in the world. Mental health, in particular kids' mental health, I think is is the under the radar screen. It's difficult to see, it's not a broken arm, it's not a physical ailment. It's in despite the um, increasing awareness and decreasing stigma, it's still a challenge. And so with kids waiting six, 12, 18 months to get access to some of the best agencies that we would have to offer, let's say here in the city of Toronto, that weight just makes issues even more acute. And so it it starts getting away from us as a community. And so by Capitalize for Kids bringing capabilities, business focused capabilities to agencies to help them solve issues of wait lists and that capacity build uh, to me resonated immensely because I'm not a healthcare practitioner. I'm not a mental healthcare practitioner. I am a business person. And while I've seen some of the, the challenges as, a, as an investor in the space, um, investing my philanthropy dollars, um, I really can't speak to, the, to delivering uh, service, but I can speak to the way it's, it happens the infrastructure put to use and ways to make that better, and that's where I can actually help build capacity with the rest of the team at Capitalize for Kids. So it's it's why the mental health, kids' mental health, spoke to me because I think it's a key element of of solving what become major issues for our communities and our economy, um, and doing it kind of nipping it in the bud uh, at the kid level, um, and by doing it using our Time and capabilities at C4K and and a little bit of money. It's just it, to me, it was a brilliant way to attack the issue. And uh, and you mentioned that at least in, the, in your transition to Capitalize
0: for Kids, it's you know finding something that you're passionate about and putting effort into that. So obviously, you were passionate about you know your previous roles at, at the bank, uh, you know in in the variety of roles that you've held. Um, but I get a sense that there was probably more that you were searching for given this this career transition that probably
1: wasn't fulfilled through your 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 job uh at a bank no i think um throughout my career to date um, what i would do is i'd seek outside of of work the the other things um and mainly the volunteer activity um from you know a year post my graduation from uh, the MBA program, I was back involved with McMaster, uh, a volunteer relationship that continues to this day. Um, you know, when <clears throat> my kids were growing up, I coached hockey teams. Uh, and, and in the, the last, I'd say, 10 years or so, uh, Diane and I have uh, done a lot to engage in our community, um, mostly through United Way and United Way agencies. Um, and we almost always focused on kids because I think for us, um, we saw challenges in, you know, with with having two parents, uh, you know, the ability to have a roof over your head consistently, food in the food in the fridge, um, not wanting for much as uh, kids trying to raise those kids were still challenges from time to time and. Um, seeing others, you know, single moms, families without uh, a regular paycheck, uh, challenges finding housing or reasonable housing, and uh, neighborhood environments that were, were very challenged, it is a difficult, difficult experience. And so we, we look to try and give back. Um, and so a lot of our work over the last 10 years has been focused on agencies that were doing that with kids. Um, We've been putting money into it, although we focused on trying to put money plus engage uh, with our time. And uh, for sure, anytime we gave money, we also did a lot of work to try and understand kind of the impact of what the money would deliver. So we came to see it as an investing opportunity, uh, just as you do due diligence on whether you invest in the Bank of Nova Scotia or CIBC or Royal TD doing your homework on their PEs, their price to books, et cetera. Uh, we would do the same type of homework on the on the uh, charities that the United Way would put forward as opportunities. And so that process, which I think of charitable investing, became kind of a hallmark of what we wanted to do to have the, the greatest impact. And so the the difficulty of doing that, obviously, is you don't have a lot of free time when you're when you're working in the capital markets business and you're trying to manage uh, it on a global basis, so operations in across Canada, New York, London, Hong Kong, and the, therefore, you, once you know you get to a certain part of your career where you you make some additional decisions, have you situated yourself so you can make truly aggressive? Some might think a decision like leaving the capital markets and come to a not for profit. you know, we could be in a position to make that kind of choice. And we've been lucky enough to get ourselves there. And I was lucky enough to be able to make that decision when this opportunity at C4K came up. I want to go back to what you mentioned about uh, charitable investing. Most people view,
0: at least I know most of my friends, uh, even I did until I kind of entered the space, I viewed donating as money I'll never see again. And I just kind of did it on a whim for people who would ask if they're running a, a, a walkathon or doing a bikeathon or what have you, uh, and that's kind of how I viewed donating. Um, you have a bit of a different approach, and you view it as investing, and you call it charitable investing. Uh, you know why?
1: Well, I think there uh, there is, as you've described it, that notion of donation and never see the money again, and and I think there's a part of my pocketbook, uh, if you will, that does that, and it responds to people who come in with asks that I'm going to walk this, or I'm going to cycle that, or I'm going to swim for this, or or my kids are, are doing uh, girl guides or Boy Scouts or whatever the case may be, and you throw $100 at it or $50 or whatever. What about an Olympic triathlon in a couple weeks? <laughs> well... <laughs> Just make, you got to make the ask first. And when you make the ask, who knows what you might get. I want to see um, that part of the pocketbook. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, I, and that is definitely just a donation. And for the most part, you're doing it because A, somebody you care about asked you. And B, you might um, care about the cause. And then C, you get a tax receipt. So those would be the three reasons why you'd do that. Um, and depending on how much of those things align for you you'll and your ability to give, you'll give more money, obviously, if it's a person you really, really like if for a cause that you really, really like and, and you're in need of a tax receipt. Um, so I, that goes on and it goes on for me and Diane. Um, but we see the investing part is far more important. And it really takes the notion that look, we give 54% of our income to the government to redeploy into the marketplace and they do that. And some would say, I give enough in taxes, I don't need to charitably give. And our view is uh, we've been, um, some would say lucky, some might say skilled plus luck, uh, but we've certainly positioned ourselves that we've done well um, and we have capacity to give back. And if we're going to give back, we want to understand what it is we're giving to and how we can have the best impact for that dollar of giving. Um, and that's why I liken it very much to investing. Um, when, when you can sit down with a management team of a, of a charity who has a well-laid-out plan, they have a firm understanding of how they can have impact if you give them $10, $100, or $1,000, doesn't really matter the number. Um, and they can articulate that uh, as a manager um, to you as a donor, I think the likelihood of you seeing an impact from that dollar to actually seeing the kinds of change that you're hoping to achieve with your uh, donation, it's far greater. Um, And I think too many people don't put that discipline on their dollar and as a result, we don't have, well, there's, you know, I still don't think there's enough charitable donations uh, going into the system. But to the extent that, that there's still a reasonable amount, they're not getting put to, to use um, in the best way possible. And why is that? Because donors aren't as uh, discerning with what they're prepared to invest in. Um, if they were more discerning and if they asked tough questions, um, it would force uh, nonprofits to make better decisions because, frankly, their feet are to the fire. What um, are some of those questions? I think number one is understanding very deeply what your mandate is. Why are you existing? What, what is it that you're looking to solve for? Um, what in the marketplace isn't being delivered that you're delivering? How are you doing that effectively? I, I certainly look at efficiency ratios as as an indication, um, but they're not. They're certainly not the end all and be all. But very definitely, you want to understand how they're spending the, the money, um, what what different levels of funding are they attracting? Is it a fully, almost fully government funded, and this is, you know, these per, private donations are are the stuff that's happening around the edges. Um, and do those edges then add dramatically uh, to the impact that they can have, i.e. the core funding levels are necessary from the government, but this is the stuff with add-ons that we basically have two, three, four-time multipliers um, of the impact. Um, It allows or enables uh, added human resource capacity so we can hire a person or two, Um, and that gets us from you know, being able to service 100 kids to 300 kids. Um, so really, it, it's, it's about understanding uh, how, how the money is going to be put to work and to get that understanding from the exec director um, who, who will be kind of, who, who is at the helm of uh, managing that team. So you kind of taken the, the, the same approach, I'm
0: sure, that you would when you were a research analyst and you would go in and meet with management teams? And you'd ask them questions. Um, you know, if you're looking to recommend this this company, this stock, uh, to your clients, you know, you'd be deploying c- capital into their companies, and you'd ask them these types of questions. Um, and now you're just using that experience to 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 bring to the the nonprofit sector and asking them
1: similar questions. Exactly right. I mean, I mean it, and I don't know that it's it should be seen to be any different. I mean, I I think. Um, you know the notion of generating a return from from that dollar invested um, more difficult because my return as measured in a public company can be the dividends. It's obviously the capital gains. Um, but I think again, if you if you're working with a, a not for profit team that understands this and appreciates it, they can show you metrics where the dollars that you're pushing in have. M- multiplier of returns, um, because they are able to service more kids. They're able to service the same number of kids with less staff. They're able to, because they've implemented an IT efficiency that wasn't there before because of your donation. Um, There's a lot of different metrics that can slide in uh, and and, um, I guess sub out, an ROE with it, or you know, a dividend return, capital gains. We can find different notions in the not-for-profit space, then. But it's exactly right that you know the types of questions you'd ask anybody about running their business and how do they do it effectively should hold whether it's a not-for-profit or a for-profit. Talk to me a little bit about the difference of
0: of donating your time versus donating dollars. Uh, you know, you've mentioned that you've tried to do both. Um, And taking an active role in where you you allocate your money is is certainly a way that that you've donated your time. Uh, I know people who view donating their time exclusive of of their their funds. So they'll only donate their time or they'll only donate their money. Um, How do you view that and and why should they come together and why
1: is it or should they not? Should they always be separate? You know, where where you're prepared to donate your time, you should be prepared to donate your money Um, and probably vice versa. I, I think what exists out there is probably a two generally two different camps. One is all I time is the most valuable resource for 99 out of 100 people. Um, and so many, as they're building their career, as you're in the prime of your career, you'd say, I'm more inclined to donate my money. Um, and so you know, I get the added benefit of, I get to feel good because I've given money, and I get the added benefit of, um, of a tax receipt, uh, which makes it a little less painful in my pocketbook. Then there are others, and generally those are people, these are people who are early in their career, who say, I believe actually money is the more value, uh, scarce resource. Um, as I've got to pay for you know my housing, which is going skyrocketing in Toronto. Uh, I'm trying to build a family, so kids are expensive to you know clothe and feed and et cetera, et cetera. And so the way I'm going to give back is with time. Um, and so I, I don't I don't have an issue with doing either of those things to to then bring it together. I think you're deeper probably into your career and say. If I'm gonna give some, some money, I should spend some time. Um, and for sure, if you're gonna see it as investing, you gotta spend some time, just like you would on your own personal portfolio. You, you mentioned that you know, a lot of your
0: volunteer work and, and getting involved and having an impact outside of work uh, started you know, kind of when you had when you kids, uh, you know, from volunteering with their hockey teams and whatnot. But when you started in the industry, right, when you were you know, 23 out of school, or 25, you know, a few years into your, your job, were you thinking about that at all? Was that something that you, you thought about?
1: Yeah, as I said to you, it, it was probably two years um, two years out of MBA school. So I was, uh, I think, 25 or 26 at the time. Um, there was a call from uh, the, the new president of the MBA Alumni Association at McMaster. It was a rejuvenation of this uh, association that hadn't, had gone dormant. And so um, I I took up that call and and became involved. Uh, I became involved in running uh, the charitable golf tournament. So it certainly started um, very quickly after I left school, which clearly also put burden on my family. Um, you know, we we bought a house when we were tw- uh, 28. We were married when we were 29, and had a kid. Um, and then two more after that. Um, And so Diane, trying to manage her career, I was managing mine, and you do these volunteer things, you certainly, there's no such thing at that point as work-life balance. It's how imbalanced are you prepared to go in any one direction at any point in time? And you've got to recognize sometimes work's going to be dominating, and your family needs to know that. Sometimes you can take a little bit of time away from family and focus it on, Uh, Take a little bit of time away from work and focus it on family. Sometimes you want to embed, you know, the volunteer activity. You're always making trade-offs. And certainly within our family, um, I I was able to do that because Diane was very supportive of, you know, me me making some of these choices. And they were choices we made fairly early to try and give back.
0: I like that. I like the... uh... It's not about a work-life balance. It's it's how imbalanced are you willing to go at any point in time? I like that because yeah. that's that's something I've heard I've heard before um, from a few folks, and and that's a really interesting point, right? It's it kind of gives you the assumption that you're not going to have everything you want. You're not going to get your cake and eat it too, and you got to be prepared to, to to live with that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's somewhat naive to believe um, that you can create these perfect balances. I mean, um, you know, by definition. Uh, the significant other that you choose uh, ha- has their own expectations as an individual, and then you have an expectation as a duo, and then when, if if you are blessed to be able to add kids into that, um, you know all of those things are going to have some sort of precedence at some point in time, and it it really is is the in a negotiation amongst uh, the players, if you will, the family unit. Um, That's going to dictate where you can go with it. Um, You know, in in 2005, I had a couple of buddies who did um, Ironman uh, Lake Placid. And they were, they came back and I said, well, let's go for a beer, let's talk about the Ironman and kind of the experience and typical male type of discussion over beers. Uh, It was all about, oh, you know, you got to do this. It doesn't mean anything to do a a, a sprint triathlon or an Olympic triathlon. Like, that's nothing. You got to do Ironman. And I'm like, okay, guys, but I don't know about you. Both of them were single, but I've got, you know, my wife and two children and, you know, the job's crazy. And, um, you know, I don't see myself doing this. And they, like, you know, they were all over me. but I had a discussion with Dan and she said, look, like my view was, look, the time's not right. We got two two young kids, six and four, lots going on. We just moved in our house. Um, she said, the time's never going to be right. Why don't you give it a go? And so 2006, I ran my first Ironman. Um, and then if you fast forward that 10 years, one of those buddies, I'm, I'm trying to cajole him into doing an Ironman. He said, oh, you know, he's got one one uh, young daughter, uh, well, it's really busy, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, look, Stu, you know, (laughs) 10 years ago, you were telling me how uh, it didn't really matter that I had two kids and you only got one and you can't find time for training. So I I think, you know, I I think these are the things that go on um, and it's never going to be perfect. And if you're looking for the perfect moment, uh, you're never going to find it. So you're never going to accomplish the things you want. Uh, sometimes you got to go with 70%, 60%, 80%, whatever it is because um, perfect doesn't exist. Uh,
0: for context, uh, within Quentin's first 48 hours of being in a capitalist for Kids employee, he shared a number of his success stories <laughs> in the, 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 the competitions of, of Iron Man and uh, you know at first we gave him a hard time but then we kind of realized we did some of our own due diligence and we realized that these were actually some pretty incredible Physical feats. Uh, so you, you mentioned how you got involved in it, it was initially through a, a few buddies, uh, one of who was named Stu. Uh, but uh, you know, how long have you been doing that, and uh, and what's that experience been
1: like? The experience is is wonderful. Um, it it's a great community. Uh, triathletes, generally speaking, I, I grew up being very competitive. Uh, any competitive sport I could find, I was willing to play. Um, with that said, I, I, you know, I've been cycling, uh, swimming, and running since I've been two, right? So, but in no, uh, nowhere was it a, um, a coordinated activity. It was simply you got on your tricycle and you, you uh, took off the training wheels on your bike, and then you were cycling, you know, um, running in the playground and uh, learning how to swim. So, It wasn't until 2000, 2001 um, when my weight got to a level that um, you started hearing these flashing signals of, you know, men with greater than a 40 waist are at high risk of everything that it dawned on me that I need to get back at things. What was the waist at? uh, 40. So 40 is the magic number for men uh, when it gets ugly. Um, And so that's... um, You know, that was a wake-up call to, you know, we need to, I need to get busy um, and put some effort back into my physical fitness and health. Um, And so I started doing some spinning classes, et cetera, and again, given the competitive nature of who I am, uh, I figured if I'm gonna do this spinning stuff, I gotta do something that I can use it for, and so triathlon was a natural. Um, Started triathlons and then, yes, that fateful uh, time at, um, you know, a a local pub and uh, hearing the story in 2005, I I, uh, I got my family and we went over to Austria for Ironman number one in Austria in 2006. And it was a wonderful experience because the whole family could enjoy it. uh, Or so I think they enjoyed it. I, I probably didn't actually enjoy race day but I enjoy the process. I, I enjoy the discipline it requires. Um, you know, I'm, I'm up consistently at 5, 5.30 in the morning. You get on the bike, you do your run, you get in the pool, whatever the case may be. Um, and, and it just gets everything started on the right foot, frankly. Um, probably I like the process as much as I like competing. Um, it has this added byproduct of making sure that you're fit. Um, which I think is important um, in order to bring energy to work, um, bring energy to my kids and my family. Uh, the, all those things, you know, are helped by uh, having having a body that isn't uh, languishing. It's it's ready to go. Has enjoying the process of of Ironman, enjoying the training, and
0: anchoring that as your you know your morning workouts and anchoring that to your day and your routine. Have you transitioned that to other, other parts of your life where, you know, you try and seek out and join the process uh,
1: versus uh, just doing it for the sake of doing it? So if it's completing an Ironman, I know what that means. I, I got to swim 3.8 kilometers, I got to bike 180 kilometers, and I got to run 42.2. Um, piece of cake. And so, piece of cake. And so getting there, I know I've got to do some swim training, some bike training, and some some running. I should do some strength training, I should do some yoga. Um, There's a bunch of things I should do, but I also need to figure out what are the things I absolutely have to do. So it's about efficiency of approach. Uh, For sure, if I have all day, all night, I I can do all kinds of things um, in prep for. But we all know that a whole bunch of different things get in the way. And at least if you have a plan, you understand where to move things. So that process, again, to the extent it's developed. You know where you can move things around, and in, t- in order to deal with the hiccups that inevitably come or the speed bumps, um, and I, so I think that these are highly relatable, um, no matter what your problem-solving. If it's in your business life, it's in your personal life, it's in your sporting life. Um, I think it, you know, a lot of the learning to kind of trying to achieve that kind of outcome is is highly transferable. Um, I think it also speaks to. When you, when you find yourself challenged by something, seek out somebody who's done it before, who has knowledge um, that you can get some feedback from. Surround yourself with some of those people. Um, and, and I'll th- call them coaches in the, in the training environment, the Ironman, who I've had a number of coaches, that all bring different things to the, to the game in terms of helping me achieve what I need to achieve. And the same I think you do in your business world where I've tried to surround myself with people that I can go to who have different experiences who can lend perspective on what I'm trying to do um, and be you know, a sounding board of, well, why don't you try this? You know, We're, we're creating a, a map to get me someplace um, and I can pull on a bunch of different people to help me get there. Um, so I think there's a lot of application Um, and maybe it's stuff that I'm doing in my work environment that I then applied into triathlon, but I think it's easier to probably see it in the triathlon context and then transition it into the work environment.
0: And there's also an element of humility there too, of, of willing to, the willingness to to lean on someone and, and to get their, their expertise.
1: For sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, Kathy Hay and her, um, in her podcast with you talked about courage. Um, and you've said humility. I mean, I, I think not to suggest that I have either. Uh, um, but what she talked about is the courage of the kids to identify that there's an issue and to call out to it. So to make that call, the kids' help phone and say, "I've got an issue. I need help." Um, and you know, an organization like hers has, has done a great job of responding to those kids as they've come in. And it does take great courage. I mean, for anyone, anyone who might listen, who thinks back to a time when they they were facing a huge challenge, if they had the capability and used it of actually reaching out to somebody a trusted person and say, "Hey, I need help," I I guarantee they felt better off, even if the person they asked for help didn't have a great answer. Just being able to t- you know you know take that burden off your shoulders. And share it with somebody makes it an easier thing to deal with. It, it probably gets lighter by at least half. Um, Invulnerable. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a part of it's a part of you know life. Um, but for sure, for somebody who's trying to do an Ironman, there's going to be points in time when you're so down, uh, particularly on race day, where you don't you don't have a clue as to how you're going to get to the finish line. Um, there, you can't actually reach out, but you certainly can reach out intellectually to try and find you know a way to get to the solution which is getting to the finish line in uh, the business life it's 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 finding people as you build yourself up from you know undergrad grad school whatever building relationships and contacts networks of people that you can go to to uh, create a support network Um, to help you build your career those are very relatable um, and parallel processes
0: what was a time where you were in the middle of a race or towards the end or wherever in a race where you saw the solution as non-viable where (laughs) you didn't think you were going to make it to the finish line how did you uh pull yourself up and, and get to that
1: point you know i i actually had this experience of uh being at that point and not pulling myself up and and uh Uh, I DNF'd Ironman Houston DNF did not finish so you actually stopped I stopped and I uh, Basically quit Um, At what point in the race? uh, I had eight miles left to go in the run you can walk it you can walk eight miles No, that isn't the point. I could walk eight miles Um, And I should have walked eight miles is the point Um, but I didn't walk eight miles and certainly all through that race, you know, it was a great race through the bike. I came onto the run. It was unfolding, challenged. But everything about Iron Man, particularly when you get to the run for a guy like me who's taller, bigger, um, hot day, 32, 34 degrees Celsius, it's going to be hard. Like, that's just, it's Iron Man. Stupid. You joined up, you paid the price, you paid for the entry, um, you knew it was going to be hard. Um, and I quit and, you know, I quit because God, it would have been, it's a lot easier to go and go back with my wife and my daughter who are there, uh, to the hotel and go splash in the pool and enjoy the time with them rather than go back out there for another eight miles, um, of just pure pain. Um, with that said, uh, I, you know, there isn't a, A day that I don't think about the fact that what was I thinking um, and why couldn't I muster uh, the um, desire to get it to the finish line and and overcome that, you know, the the little devil on my shoulder that said, quit now, it'll feel better. Um, It certainly did at that moment in time. Uh, The relief valve of saying, okay, the pain's over. I don't need to do it anymore. Um, But I'll live with it forever. Um, And I would certainly say that then has helped propel some of my other experiences um, to, you know, it is mind over matter. Um, You can get your mind around something, you can get it done. Um, So uh, you need to challenge yourself to push through some of those Times when it's pretty bleak. And again, this is, I mean, it's in the context of an Ironman, but there's lots of times in our lives when things are looking pretty bleak. Um, If you're lucky if you don't see any, um, I think everyone sees one or two or three or 10. Um, And particularly when you get into the not for profit sector and, and some of the kids that we deal with at C4K and they're the agencies that have to deal with kids and families, I mean, they're seeing them far more often than they should have to. Um, and to try and create the coping skills, the resilience to be able to come back from that. Um, within Iron Man, that gave me a learning experience. Um, it, it, it's now, I think, given me the strength to say, no matter what I'm facing, and I'm gonna get it done. It may not be pretty, it may not be fast, uh, but I'm gonna make sure it happens um, because the alternative just isn't pleasant. Um, it, there's, there's nothing about it that's that gives me value, um, and so I had to learn that. Um, uh, and hopefully, you know what happens in the agencies that we support is they're helping those kids deal with the resiliency of being able to to look down at something that's very disappointing to them. It's got them in the deepest, darkest hole, and find a way to get out and learn from it, and then the next time maybe they don't even need to make the call they figured out that coping mechanism they've figured out that resilience at that time and and they they find a way to pull themselves out without even the need for for the agency support so these are things that i think you know i'm i'm glad to have had you know iron man and triathlon to help me learn these things um, versus having to experience them the way some of uh, you know, our agency's uh, clients have to experience them.
0: Love it. Quentin Broad, thank you very much for, for making the time from traipsing around Bay Street to then following Evan Sequeira's footsteps to the nonprofit world. Thank you very much for joining us here. Loved, uh, loved having you as a guest. Thanks, Al. Appreciate it. And there you have it. Thank you all for listening and a special thanks to Quentin for the interview. As mentioned in the intro, this was our final episode of the season, uh, but stay tuned as we will be back with season two in the fall. A special thanks to all of our listeners and especially to those who reached out with feedback and guest recommendations. We have listened and have lined up an impressive cast of guests for season two. So please stay tuned uh, for when we will be launching in the fall. I am your host, Evan Saquera, and this episode was produced by our digital marketing genius, Eugene McCashew. And we both wish you an incredible summer uh, filled with sunshine and hopefully some cottage time. Uh, and please check back with us in the fall where we will be bringing you season two of the Capitalize for Kids podcast. Until then, take care.